0: works better on. Please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. We are continuing in our study of the law of Moses and its first giving uh, here in the book of Exodus today. And so uh, the the topic of our study will cover uh, several chapters, chapter 21 through 23. We won't hit all of it. And so I just want to give you a feel for what's going on here and, and that will become more clear as we move on so exodus chapter 21 i want to go ahead and read uh, from the, this one of these verses here in this law of moses one that just stands out to me that we'll be able to talk about in a moment it's in chapter 22 actually chapter 22 verse 18 this is the law god is giving to israel god says You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, we come now to your word, your truth, your plan of redemption contained in a book for us. But God, I pray that today by the power of your spirit, you would help us Uh, to not only read these words, but to understand them and to love them. Because God, we want to be a people who are diligent students of your word, that we might become uh, greater worshipers and uh, those who enjoy you more fully and those who share you with those around us, your glory, your goodness, your grace. Lord, I pray that you would do this today in the name of Jesus. Amen. I learned a principle while my family and I were in Europe uh, the last few weeks, or a few weeks ago, rather. Here's that principle. You can know a law that is good and right, but it be a bad thing because you applied that good and right law in the wrong context. So the law is good, you know that law, you apply that law, but it ends up being a bad thing because you apply that law in the wrong context. So let me just explain to you first how I learned that principle, and then I'll show you how it applies with the law of Moses. See, I've been driving for about 20 years now, maybe a little bit more, and uh, so I'm quite familiar with America's laws for driving um, my, my record hasn't always shown that but I am aware of the laws and, and so uh, th- that's cool you know uh, the, the laws are a good thing that we have for the most part you know um, they're, they're good laws but the problem comes when you try or when I try <laughs> to apply America's laws for driving in Europe in, in in Germany, in uh, the Netherlands, or uh, the two places that I drove. And I, by the way, was very excited about driving in Europe. I wasn't in the UK, so I was still on our side of the road, the correct side of the road, as we might say. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but I was excited about it. You know, like, I'm going to go cruising down the German Autobahn. Um, you know, I'm going to navigate the narrow streets of Amsterdam. And so I was excited about that. But I went, and again, I applied America's laws that are good and right in America, in Europe. And it didn't always work out real well. Obviously, we made it home in one piece, so praise God for that. Uh, But let me just mention to you a couple of laws that you may or may not be familiar with uh, that are true uh, in Germany and and that make our laws in, in the United States not really fit so well. Uh, one, for instance, this one's, uh, you, you probably do know this one, uh, the German Autobahn, you are not allowed to remain in the left-hand lane. The, the, the left-hand lane is a passing lane only. If you, so I, I thought that was interesting because, you know, in the United States, which again, I would love this law <laughs> if we had it, like, the, and um, from what the missionary told me, you will get a ticket if you cruise in that left-hand lane. And uh, But I I thought, well, that's kind of a crazy rule because, you know, in America, people seem to park in it and, you know, you have to pass them on the right. Anyways, um, so I asked the missionary, you know, like, why is that? He said, if you cruise in the left-hand lane, you will most likely cause an accident. I say, why is that? He says, well, on much of the German Autobahn, there is no speed limit in that left-hand lane. And uh, almost always the speed limit is higher in that left-hand lane, but very often uh, there is no speed limit in that left-hand lane. And you say, you think about Germany, by the way, BMW, Porsche. I mean, you, you've got cars that will be cruising well over 100 miles an hour. They, they are, are, are just pushing it. And so if you're just in that left-hand lane and they, they come, you know, around the corner or whatever, and you're in that lane, you are very likely going to cause an accident. So in Germany, you do as the Germans do. You, you pass and then you get back over real quickly. All right, so that's one law that I thought was interesting Uh, another one um, that it crossed my mind that I might not be right about it. Uh, I came up to a red light, you know, and and, uh, I've got cars coming up behind me, and I was going to be turning right, and so in the United States, I'm a very conscientious driver, meaning, like, I don't like to put other people out. I don't want people honking at me because I don't go, and so I'm sitting at this light, and I'm like, I think I could go, and, you know, in America, you stop at a red light, but you're allowed to go right on red, and so it crossed my mind. I wonder if they have that law. And so I did it, uh, not wanting to inconvenience the people behind me. Then I asked the missionary later, and he says, nope, that is illegal. Absolutely, you do not do that in, in uh, Europe. Again, because the speeds and things are just <laughs> different. You don't, you don't pull out. Now, that seems interesting that you're not allowed to turn right on red but what will totally just boggle your mind is this other law that they have. I meant to draw a picture for you or something, uh, but here, here's what it is, okay? If you're going on a road, and you're going straight on that road, and there is a, a, a road that what is it, intersects from the right, okay, so you're going down that road, you're on that main road, a road intersects from the right. If a car comes on that road from the right, they have the right of way. You have to slow down or even stop to let them pull out in front of you even though you are the one on the main road. They are the one entering onto your road. We're not talking about merges. We're talking about a perpendicular road coming in. I mean I, I, I heard that law and I said are you serious? If there's a yellow diamond then that law doesn't apply but uh, if there's no yellow diamond that car has the right-of-way not the person on the main road. By the way I didn't cause an incident, but someone, not my wife either, caused an incident uh, with that law. But I I asked the missionary, I said, you're joking me that every single right-hand thing a car can pull up to it and pull out in front of me? I have to slow down or stop to let them out? He said, yes, the reason is Germans are very serious about keeping your attention on the road. In America, we're more serious about getting that text to the person uh, out there or or surfing social media while driving. Germany says, you idiot Americans, and so they have this law that that slows you down because you know that a car, this is the way the missionary explained it to me, you know that a car could always be coming out, so you're always going a little bit slower and you're always looking to see if someone is coming so you don't cause an accident because you need to slow down or stop for that car coming in again. There was some honking, some tailgating, and uh, hand gestures involved when that law was not obeyed. Um, anyways, I don't want to go into that. Not my story to tell, <laughs> even though I kind of already did. Uh, so think about this. In America, I, was, I follow these laws, and they work very well. They're appropriate. They're fitting. They're right. They're good. You go to Germany or you go to the Netherlands, and those laws are still right and good, In America, but they do not fit the context. So it is very important that we understand laws in their proper context, and so today what I want to do more than dissecting each and every law is I want you to help, I want to help you understand how these laws, as God originally gave them to this original group of people, how they would have applied for them, the way they would have fit in their society, in that context. That is the bulk of what I want to do today. Um, I will bring it back around to Christ. We'll get there. But we need to have a proper understanding of this law. And the the reason, again, is because we're going to read these laws and it's going to be like me that I say, what, you can't stay in the left-hand lane? What, you can't turn right on red? What, you have to let cars in from the right? We, We won't understand rightly These laws given by God to Israel, we won't understand how these laws are carried out. We won't understand what's going on when they don't obey those laws. And so just the rest of the Bible will be a lot more difficult to to, to rightly understand and appreciate if we don't understand the law of Moses. I mean, you understand that the law of Moses was technically, in effect, um, fully and applied until the Gospels, like until Jesus Died and rose again, and the and the Holy Spirit descended in the Book of Acts. I mean, this this is what's going on. Is this law of Moses continued for another fifteen hundred years? So that's Exodus all the way through, uh, you know, the the Gospels and the Book of Acts. There, so we need to understand it to understand the Bible and to understand God's grace and goodness and to understand the glory of the gospel. So let's get into it now. The first principle that we need to understand to to hold these laws in their proper context is this. The law of Moses was a unique law for a unique people. Notice that word unique is repeated. (laughs) That is intentional. The law of Moses is a unique set of laws for a unique people. If anyone says, that we should try to make America enforce the law of Moses, you can just tell them that point right there. Say, no, the law of Moses was a unique law for a unique people. Now, I I do believe nations can and should and actually have uh, taken a lot of good principles from the law of Moses, and they have applied them to civil governments uh, to great benefit to those nations But to copy and paste the law of Moses into uh, America's laws would be foolish. Why? It would be applying good and right laws in the wrong context. Because this was a unique law for a unique people. And, And by the way, we'll pick up more on this later. Like with the conquest of Canaan and things like that. They were a unique people. And what we'll see is this. This is uh, kind of the first sub-point there in your notes. Israel, what made them so unique, and this law so unique, is that Israel was a theocracy. Theocracy. Theos is the Greek word for God. Theocracy. And so, you've probably heard of a democracy. A democracy is a government, you know, for the people, by the people. You've probably heard of a monarchy, which, in its most rigid sense, means that one human person is the supreme supreme king lawmaker and judge of a nation that would be a monarchy in the most strict sense we uh, don't see that very often today when you do it's more of a tyranny you know Um, anyways dictatorship kind of thing Um, but so yeah we, we know democracy we know monarchy but you are probably less familiar with this form of government known as theocracy And you just don't see that. Like when you're looking at nations and you're looking at what kind of governments they have, you just aren't going to find theocracy in there. And the reason for that is, is that the only nation that ever has been a theocracy is Israel. At this time, Israel was a theocracy. And they're the only nation up to that point that had ever been a theocracy and the only nation after that has ever been a theocracy. What a theocracy is, you know so you think of monarchy, one human is the supreme king, lawmaker and judge. A theocracy, Theos, God, is where God himself is the supreme king, lawmaker and judge of a nation, of that particular nation. And that's what Israel is. God is the primary and supreme, explicitly. Uh, their ruler of their government. And so this is what Israel was. See, God had made unique promises to Israel's forefathers, right? We think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so that's why when we started the book of Exodus, this was God's people. And God is fulfilling the promises he made uh, to, originally to Abraham. And one of those was, I will make you into a great nation and i will bless you and 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 so on and so forth then it is god that redeemed israel as a people from their slavery in egypt and in that redemption god was making them a people for himself now we see this several times earlier in the book of exodus i'm not going to go back there but you think of let my people go god says my people, yeah, my people, the people of Israel. He even calls Israel my son. Uh, so, but anyways, we even see this in the law. I just uh, have one verse for you, chapter 22, 25. God says this, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Notice, God says, if you, what is it? If you lend money to any of my people, people that's God stating his unique ownership of the people of Israel all the earth is mine but Israel is his treasured possession they're in a very personal way my people for God and this is the nation of Israel alone God is their ruler God is their lawmaker and God is the one who decides the punishment for those who break the laws This is what it means for Israel to be a theocracy. And that will make all the difference in the world for many things that we'll see happen in the book of Exodus and and, and further. But even in these laws, in the law of Moses, it will make a gigantic difference that they are a theocracy rather than just a monarchy or a, a democracy or anything like that. One of the most important distinctions that we'll see uh, or that you can see if you read through all of them, is this. In the law of Moses, the secular and sacred intertwine. The secular and sacred intertwine. See, in our 21st century world and in our type of government, we think of things in compartments. They're, they're separate. I hope we don't, but like this is just the way it often works. We think, okay, I have my work life. I have my social life. You know, and then I have my church life. We have our our civil uh, responsibilities to our, our government. We have our moral responsibilities. We kind of think of to ourselves and to God to be a good, moral, upright person. And then we have our religious ceremonial responsibilities to God. But in the law of Moses, all those walls are torn down. There is no separation between the secular and the sacred. God is their king. God is the object of their worship, and being both at the same time, he's supposed to be the object of their worship, and being both at the same time, their laws intertwine, overlap, whatever you want to say, the secular and the sacred. I want to show you uh, this just a little bit in the law of Moses. I'm going to give you some of the laws here um, in just a moment of how they intertwine and overlap. And there's no distinction between the two. There's no order of like, now I'm going to give you the ceremonial. Now I'm going to give you the civil. Now I'm going to give you the moral. Uh, It's just all intertwined with one another. And so I'm just going to list this for you. And then we're going to read them. Okay. Exodus 22, 16 to 28. The first law will be a civil law mixed with a moral law. The next law will be a religious law, uh, yeah, a strictly religious law. The, the, the one after that will be a moral slash religious law. The next one will be a religious law, followed by several civil and moral laws. Uh, and then after that, you see more religious and civil. So that's what I want you to pick up on as we read these. You say, well, what, what's he talking about right, right now? Just civil responsibilities? Our, our moral life? You know, our, our, how, how, how we... Uh, Feel morally and even in our relation to God, or our ceremony, our religious duties. And you will see that the two are intertwined. So look at it uh, either on the screen or in your Bibles. Exodus 22, beginning in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins okay so i'll just pause on that first i would say that is a moral law because uh the man is seducing we'll say a woman who is not his wife and so he has to pay a penalty but in addition to that it is actually a civil law because in that day when a a daughter was married off the, the groom would pay the father a bride price and so, if that daughter has been seduced by another man, and then he walks away, in their culture, that that woman was damaged goods. The father could no longer require that bride price, and this would have been a large uh, sum of money or amount of goods or things like that. And so, that is why it becomes a civil matter. That in in stealing this girl's virginity, he's also stolen a large amount of money from the father, and so the bride price has to be paid. If he uh, marries her, great, he pays the bride price. If the father says she ain't marrying that scoundrel, he pays the bride price anyways and then leaves. It was a, a moral and civil law. Now the very next verse, verse 18, you see it on the screen, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. I mentioned that one earlier, uh, but anyways, we'll, we'll come back. That is clearly a religious law against what we might call witchcraft. That's what sorcery is. It's calling upon uh, the spirit world, the demonic, in order to gain power or, or insight or anything like that, and this is a, a law. You get that? Like This isn't the church saying, hey guys, don't play with Ouija boards. This is God saying, Uh, if you shall not permit a sorceress to live if you if you do sorcery if you do witchcraft you will be put to death by the government next verse 19 we say whoever it says whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death again this is a moral law but it's also a religious law i hope you see the obvious reasons that that is a moral law it's gross it's wrong it's contrary to nature it's perverted. But it is also considered a religious law because this is, uh, we know from, from other historical books and things, that other pagans did that act, lying with animals, in worship to false gods. And so this would have been a pagan act of worship. So this is both a moral and a religious law. We move on to verses 21. Oh, no, verse 20. That one says, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So again, this is a civil governmental law that you don't sacrifice to. You don't worship any God other than Yahweh God alone. This would have been equal to mutiny against God because God was also their king, right? There, it's a theocracy. There is no separation between rebelling against the government and rebelling against God. It's, it's, it's one and the same. Again, we move on. I, I want to read these again. We're not even reading all of the laws, um, so I just want to give you, again, a flavor for what we have going on here. Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. So it's just gone from don't, don't do these other things, don't, don't worship other gods, to now you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. This is This is a moral law, your virtue. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and and, and your children fatherless. Then it goes on, verse 25. Is that one up there? No. Verse twenty-five is kind of along the same line. If you lend money to any of my people who is with you, who is poor, so this is now poor. We've seen the sojourner, we've seen the widow, we've seen the fatherless. Now we see the poor. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest to him. If you, uh, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Again, you have the government dictating moral life. The, 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 the way they treat or, or mistreat or don't help uh, the, these who are disadvantaged. Uh, again, we, we see there verse 28 kind of ties this together. I, I love this. How so you see the secret. Sacred and the secular uh, intertwined. Verse 28 You shall not revile God. That's kind of like religious, right? You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. That's civil, all in one command. Don't revile God, don't curse a ruler of your people. And this is just the pattern of the law of Moses. I, I know our Bibles have some little headings there, but often the laws don't fit the headings, not all of them, anyways. Uh, and that's because there, there are no categories in the law of Moses in the way that it was originally given. I recognize that we can think through moral and civil and uh, ceremonial laws that are in the law of Moses, and, th- and that's true, but in the way God gave it to them, it was all intertwined. They were all one and the same. To obey God was to obey the government. To obey the government was to obey God. To live a moral life was to be right with the government and with God. Like, th- this is how it all worked. I think about this, by the way, um, in our own lives, wouldn't it be good if we saw all of our lives as being lived before God? That, that we didn't act differently, speak differently at work. I, I don't want to overly principalize this, but it's just too easy. <laughs> that, that, that the way that we treat our families is the same when we're at church and and, and when we're at home right uh that, that the way we deal with our finances uh and and just all these different areas of our lives if we could see every bit of it as intertwined the sacred and the secular my my, my normal work duties those are an act of worship to god my, my religious my church life that's an act of worship To God. My personal morals, when no one can see me, that's an act of worship to God. That is, by the way, what the New Testament tells us that we should be a living sacrifice every moment of our lives under God and worship to God. This is what God would have for us, and this is what God was commanding in the law of Moses. It's a unique law for a unique people. They alone of the nations of the world were a theocracy where the sacred and the secular uniquely intertwine. Now, I've spent quite a bit of time explaining that because it's just so important for understanding the law of Moses. This is for the people of God, given directly by God, because God is both their God and their king. But you think about the law of Moses and how we often talk about it, how we often think about it. And, and I think the law of Moses generally gets a bad rap. You know, people, people say the law of Moses was just a bunch of strict rules and regulations with harsh punishments. You know, they, we think like it would have been such a burden for those poor Israelites to have this law imposed upon them by God. And we can even generalize it more. If people talk about the God of law in the Old Testament, and the God of grace in the New Testament, as though something changed his mind in between. But here's what I want to show you. I want to, in some ways, vindicate the law of Moses. Again, in redemptive history, yes, what Christ has done in the New Covenant are far greater than the Old Covenant and the law of Moses. The the, the glory of Christ and what he's accomplished makes the law of Moses seem like a, a dim... Uh, candle that's going out. But in its original context, again, this is what we need to see. In its proper context, these laws were a gracious gift from God for the people of Israel. They were meant to be a blessing, not a burden on them. This is what I want to show you next. Number two, the laws were just and fair. All the laws and the laws of Moses were were just and fair. Again, oh, they had these, you know, burdensome laws put upon them. No, what I want to show you is the laws that God gives them were just and fair because they were given by a just and fair God. You think, what is true justice? What, What is true justice? What makes a law just or unjust? What makes a government just or unjust? Well, we can speak first of what, what's unjust. An unjust law is where the punishment is more like an embittered and over, uh, overblown retaliation. I, I kind of lived this way, I'm embarrassed to say, in my growing up years in school. My thinking was, if you hit me, I pummel you, right? Like, I, I'm, I don't just pay you back with another hit. I'm going to make you really, really regret whatever you do to me. And that, that was just kind of how I lived in high school. Is very contrary to God and the gospel, uh, but that was the way I lived. And that is the way many governments functioned. A person could commit a relatively small crime and the, the punishment would be so disproportionately heavy. Or it was that a person would commit, uh, again, maybe an accidental crime or something like that, and the family, maybe someone gets killed, and the family says, all right, I'm going to kill him, even though he accidentally uh, killed my, my family member. But I'm not only going to kill him, I'm going to kill his whole family as well. I mean, th- and this was very common um, in the time that this law was given to Moses. So that's unjust. When, when the, the punishment is a massive overreaction to the crime. But on the other hand, there's something else that is unjust. That is when someone commits a crime and they are not punished for it. They, they, they commit the crime, they are caught for it, and if anything happens to them at all, it is very small. We, we kind of have the term a slap on the wrist. You know, it's the kind of punishment that a child says, ha, my parents think that hurt, and they walk away knowing they're going to do it again. That's injustice, Right? But that is not what we see in the law of Moses. The law of Moses breaks the mold of what was going on in the world around them. And the first way we see that is the punishment fits the crime. Instead of being overblown or instead of being, oh, we'll just let them off, you know, for that crime. The punishment fits the crime. This was, again, the justice of God being applied to the nation of Israel. I want to show you this in a couple of places. First, in Exodus 21, this is again in, in this law of Moses within the scope of what we're studying here. <clears throat> Exodus 21, verses 12 and 13 says this: Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. That's the death penalty, right? You, you, you murder someone, you, you are put to death. But there is a caveat. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, that, by the way, is is kind of a Hebrewism, if you will, for circumstances fell this way, but they acknowledge that God is the one who dictates circumstances. So it just so happens that you kill that person. So you didn't lie in wait for him. You didn't premeditate. You didn't intentionally do this, but God let him fall into his hand then I, God, will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So the punishment is not disproportionate to the crime there. You have, if someone murders, someone lies in wait, they, they purposely kill another person, they are put to death. But if something else happened, they did not intentionally murder them, they did not, you know, premeditate their murder, then they were allowed to flee to these what will later be called cities of refuge, there they would be uh, defended from any family members or friends, avenging the death, putting them to death, because something else happened. You know, again, it could have been a complete accident, it could have been self-defense, and what would happen is the judges in that city of refuge would, would judge the case for what the proper punishment will be. So it's, it's not overblown punishment, it's not just one size fits all, you, you know, it, it, there, there's reason, there's justice being served. But on the other hand, we see the exact opposite uh, of not letting criminals off the hook on technicalities. We see this again, Exodus 21, verses 28 and 29, when an ox, which is a big, scary animal, it, it's great for farming, but uh, not a great pet. Anyway, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Okay, so the, this animal, this ox is just an example of uh, this animal, um, kills a person, it gores them. The animal is put to death But the owner goes away free. He's not liable for the crime. He didn't commit it. His animal did. He's not responsible for that. But, but, it will not let the the, the criminal go unpunished if it is their fault. Look at verse 29. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. In this case, he's not let off just because he did not directly commit the crime. The fact that he did not keep in, he did not um, you know, enclose this animal to keep it away from people, knowing that it was prone to gore people, to attack people, it might as well be that he did the killing himself. And so the punishment, again, fits the crime. The criminal is not let off the hook by a technicality. Oh, it was my animal, not me. No. You, you, you were negligent in this, and, and intentionally negligent. You knew this animal uh, was prone to gore, and you let it happen anyways. You are put to death. This, this is justice. The punishment fits the crime. We even have this exemplified uh, there in verse uh, 23 to 25 of the same chapter, 21. This is talking about if two men are fighting, they hit a pregnant woman, and, and the, the baby is born prematurely. It says, uh, if there is no harm, this is what happens before, if there's no harm, then the one who hit the woman will pay a fine as the husband dictates. Then we come here uh, to verse 23. But if there is harm, that's either to the mother or to the, the child, the baby, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Does that sound like the punishment fits the crime? Say that child comes out and its hand is deformed because you did that. Guess what? Your hand is about to be deformed too. The punishment fits the crime. This is God's economy. God is not some vindictive, tyrannical dictator. God is just, and he is giving them just laws. And and I'll be very quick on this point, but the next thing we see is the judgments are indiscriminate. What that means is, again, most other nations, you can look at these historical records, most other nations would defer to, they would protect only the rich and powerful. The aristocracy, they're, they're known as. The aristocrats, those were protected by the laws. But just normal people, poor people, often women and children and, and things like they were not protected. In the law of Moses, I could give you many examples. Um, I'll only give you one. But we see that male, female, young, old, rich, poor, all of these things, they're protected and punished alike. Everyone is under this just and fair law because the judgments were indiscriminate. I'll I'll show you this just quickly, Exodus 23, 1 and 2. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so that's siding with the popular people, so as to pervert justice nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. It's saying just because a person's poor and you feel sympathy, don't actually even side with them if it's not true, if it's not just, if it's not right. But then it goes on, uh, 23, 6 through 8. Um, it says, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in the lawsuit. So that's the opposite, saying just because someone's rich or, or whatever, don't, don't defer to them. Just because someone's poor, don't neglect them you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So again, the rich person can pay you a bribe if you get them off the hook. The poor person can't. You can blame a poor person and the rich person bribes you. But God is saying, no, we do not Discriminate justice will be served, no matter what these outward attributes of you are, or no matter what you could possibly give back, everyone is treated justly. Everyone is protected the same, and everyone is punished the same if they find themselves on the wrong side of the law. This is a wonderful law. This is a glorious and gracious gift I want to mention to you, uh, because I don't want to make this only civil, right? The secular and the sacred intertwine in the law of Moses. God gave the law of Moses, and we, we talked about this last time I preached on this, three weeks ago, or four weeks ago now. Um, the law of Moses, obedience to it was not in order to be saved. We, we talked about this. Obedience to the law of Moses was not in order to be saved. Obedience was to show that you were truly saved that you had truly trusted in God for salvation, and so you obeyed these laws. And what the law of Moses was to be was to guard their relationship with God, to to guide their relationship with God. Uh, in, In addition, it was to bless them. God gives them many great blessings, promises many great blessings if they will but obey this law. Some of those blessings will simply happen as they flourish as a, as a nation that treats one another with justice and fairness. But many of those blessings are, are direct and God-given and, and personal blessings from God. This is not a burden God is imposing upon Israel. It is a wonderful, just, and fair gift to them. But, but there, there's, there's an issue here. Because we say... Well, if the law is so good, if this law is such a gift from God, then, then why don't we want America to have it today? Why, why shouldn't uh, we, we just copy and paste the laws of Moses into our life and say, okay, this is how I'll stand right before God. This is how I'll be sanctified is by me obeying these laws. If the law was so good, why did Jesus make it no longer apply to us in the same way it did for Israel? Here, here's the answer, and we'll work on this a, a little bit, but, but it'll, be, it'll be quick. The law is bad news without Jesus. This law was nothing but bad news for Israel if Jesus did not come one day. See, the law with the ceremonies and things that it gave here in Exodus and the many more ceremonies and sacrifices that are going to happen in the book of Leviticus, I mean, without Jesus, they're, they're still in very big trouble. They, they might be a little bit more moral and they're making these sacrifices, but the blood of uh, bulls and goats cannot actually take away sin. We, we've already learned that justice must be served under a just God, a just and indiscriminate, fair God, justice must be served, and so their sins are are covered by the blood of bulls and goats and sheep. And without Jesus, this, the law is bad news. And and by the way, I, I should mention, Israel did not keep the law of Moses. <laughs> I mean, you you read the rest of the Bible, and again, that's what I mean. You need to understand the laws in the context. They, they they turn very quickly to idolatry, turning their eyes away from God, setting their eyes on things that are not God and worshiping them as though they are God. And as they turn away from God, they become thieves and murderers. They become those who oppress the poor and the orphan and the widow. They brought, I mean, there, there are some faithful, don't get me wrong, but by and large, Israel lives contrary to the law of Moses. And so they become the recipients of God's promised curses rather than God's promised blessings. But I would even say for us, the law is bad news without Jesus because I recognize that today we're, we are not Israelites. We're not living 3,500 years ago when, when this law was given. So this law does not directly uh, apply to us, but it still reflects the God that we live under. There is still a God who, though he is not king of our nation, he's king of the whole world. And that God is just. The punishment will fit the crime for every sin we commit against God's commands. You say, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll talk my way out of it. Maybe God will be impressed with me. Maybe I'll bribe God. God is indiscriminate. He shows no partiality to the rich or the poor. God won't look at you and say, oh, well, you know, you're rich and maybe you have something to offer me so I'll let you off the hook. And he doesn't even say, well, you're poor so I have sympathy on you. No, indiscriminate. I want you to to, to see this. The law must be perfectly kept and perfectly punished. God's law, whether it be the law of Moses for Israel or just God's commands in general for us, God's law must be perfectly kept and perfectly punished or it's Bad news. Uh, You say, again, I've been really good. I'm not that bad. So many others are way worse than me. Look at what James says. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Whether it be three sins you have committed in your entire life or three million, we're all guilty under God's law, God's commands. The law must be perfectly kept and it must be perfectly punished where broken. You think about uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us, Israelite or not, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We all deserve God's just punishment, which is being taken away from his glorious blessed presence and put under his wrath for eternity. That is the punishment fitting the crime. We've sinned against the supreme God of glory Therefore, we deserve eternal death. So the law is bad news without Christ. And this is where we see Christ come in. Christ is our righteousness and power. I, I know I need to be quick here. Christ is our righteousness. What that means is, I'll just sum it up. Christ came into this world. God the Son came into this world, took on human flesh, and he fulfilled the whole law he kept the whole law he he was born under the law of moses and he kept all the law of moses not only that he kept all the commands of god he always did the will of god he was always perfectly obedient to god every single step of the way that is the way jesus lived yet jesus took the punishment The punishment that we deserve. The the Bible says he became a curse for us coming under the law. Coming under the punishment of the law. Jesus is nailed to a tree and the wrath of God that we deserve. The just punishment for our breaking of God's law and God's commands is poured out in full on Jesus. Jesus says the words, it is finished. And that's what he means. It's paid in full there on the cross. And so the law is very bad news for us unless there is someone who has perfectly kept the law and also perfectly absorbed the punishment we deserve. And that's Jesus Christ. By faith, we are united to him. That means the punishment we deserve that was paid in him cleans our record. We become sinless spotless, the righteous, perfectly obedient, pleasing life that he lived before God and before man, that is given to us. We are united to Christ's righteousness. Christ is all you have. Do not rely on your good works, I beg you. I beg you, because the law, obedience to the law is very bad news without Jesus. But Jesus doesn't leave us there as merely positionally righteous before god he gives us his power to live out that righteousness in our normal lives titus i don't know if i have it or not let me see yep i'll I'll end with this for the grace of god has appeared that's jesus bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He purifies us from lawlessness, makes us not want to do these lawless things, and he makes us want to do zealous for good works. You say, well, what does good works look like? What does righteousness look like? I like how uh, Galatians, Paul, how we put it there. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to be obedient to God? The law of Moses, while it's helpful and while we can learn a great deal from it, it was a unique law for a unique people. What you need to focus on is Jesus Christ who is your righteousness. Then out of an overflow of love for God and by the power that Jesus gives you, love one another and you will fulfill the law. You will please God. You will enjoy and experience a relationship with God. You will bring glory to God by reflecting His love, His righteousness, His justice, His everything. This is what Jesus does for us. What what the law could not accomplish, Jesus does. He makes us righteous and makes us able to do righteousness. So if you're clinging to your own moral life, hoping the good will outweigh the bad, hoping God will be impressed, hoping you'll talk your way out of it at the pearly gates, I beg you, don't stay under the law any longer. Come to Jesus. Accept his righteousness. Accept His power to live for him. Let's pray. Father God, we do, again, thank you for the law of Moses. We thank you that it was a great gift for Israel. While Israel, by and large, turned against your great commands, God, there was one Israelite, namely Jesus, who kept The whole law. He loved you. He pleased you. He he loved his neighbor. He he did all that he was commanded to do from the right heart, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are so thankful that we know Jesus has taken all our failures, all our flaws, all our outright sins, and he has borne the punishment for them on the cross. And in love, he wants to give us his righteousness. God, we are so thankful thankful for that. And so God, if there is anyone in this room who has not yet received the righteousness of Christ, God, let them lay down their own righteousness. Let them lay down their pride and self-sufficiency and cling to Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his work, his righteousness. And God, I pray that you would help us to live in the power that Jesus provides God, may we become more and more zealous by Christ's power for good works. Help us to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, I pray this for your supreme glory and our supreme joy. In the name of Jesus, amen.